0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. Despite decades of research into the historic settlements of mainland Southeast Asia, our understanding of the region's long term settlement history remains incomplete. We know for example that mainland Southeast Asia was home to the world's most extensive pre-industrial low-density urban complex at the site of Greater Angkor in Cambodia. But we don't know how the site and its low-density configuration fits within the broader settlement history of the region. This is important because as today's guest proposes, understanding these settlement histories is important not only for understanding what happened in the past, but also for how we interpret settlement patterns developing across the region today. To explore the long-term history of settlement development across mainland Southeast Asia, I am joined by Dr Ben Darmendra, archaeologist and long-term member and supporter of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Ben's research focuses on how human settlements develop through time and the effects they create. His PhD project involved reconstructing the long-term history of mainland Southeast Asian settlements, And how this history influenced the development of the region from around 500 BCE right up to the end of the 19th century. Ben, welcome to SIAC Stories.
0: Thanks very much for having me. It's such an honour to be on SIAC Stories.
1: And it's so nice to have an archaeologist on the (laughs) programme.
0: Yes, (laughs) thanks, Natalie.
1: So normally we're talking to researchers who look at one or maybe two countries, but you're interested in mainland Southeast Asia. Can we start by defining that for our listeners?
0: Sure. So I took mainland Southeast Asia basically to be all the land territories within the modern nations of what are considered mainland Southeast Asia, which are attached to the Eurasian continent. Um, So basically that included all the land territories of Myanmar, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, the western portion of uh, Malaysia and Singapore.
1: So your research tries to understand what the major centres of this region looked like and to establish region-wide patterns. Where on earth do you start with that sort of research question? How did you collect your data? What sort of data did you use?
0: Yeah, that's that's a really good question. And because I was looking at such a wide territory and a very long time period, basically I was very dependent on the existing research which had been undertaken across mainland Southeast Asia. And so I used a lot of, say, archaeological reports, historical documents, secondary historical resources. And what I was particularly looking for is any information that would give us an idea about what the settlements of this region looked like and were like as physical places. So I was looking at evidence about where people lived in these settlements, how big they were, how many people might have been living in particular areas, so the density of these settlements and other kind of physical features such as infrastructure, religious structures, water infrastructure, things like that, anything that would kind of give an idea of what these places were like as physical settlements and places to live in.
1: Did you find all the data you needed or were there gaps? Were people focusing on, let's say, Angkor and neglecting other parts of the archaeological record?
0: The big differences in, in terms of countries, differences in time periods and yeah, in differences between individual settlements. So a place like Angkor in Cambodia is now very well studied. I mean, there's still plenty of research to do there, but then some of the lesser known settlements of the mainland might have one or two archaeological projects and some haven't been studied at all. A very big diversity in the availability of settlement data. So, to take one example, some of the Cham settlements along Vietnam's central and southern coastlines, we have relatively little data on those sites. We have some information, particularly on the religious structures, but comparatively little about, you know, say where people were living in those landscapes. So that's a bit of a challenge. So there's, yeah, there is a lot of difference.
1: Is that absence in the available data because scholars haven't researched it or because there simply isn't the archaeological record for scholars to research?
0: Yeah, there's a big variability, as I was saying, in which settlements have been the focus of archaeological research. And doing settlement archaeology in Southeast Asia is actually a big challenge and one of the big reasons for this is basically all the domestic structures of the region up until the late 19th century were predominantly built in perishable organic materials such as wood and bamboo. And what this has meant is they, they have long since degraded away, leaving very little trace. And so Southeast Asian archaeology is a big challenge. So a lot of the physical stuff that made up these settlements has long since disappeared. And so reconstructing what they might have looked like is a big challenge.
1: You've mentioned some of the lesser-known settlements, and I think you mentioned Charm in southern Vietnam on the coast there. Can you give us some examples of some of the other smaller settlements in the region?
0: Yes, so there are the well-known ones. I've already mentioned Angkor, and then there's places like Bagan in Myanmar. Some of them are very large and would have housed thousands of people, but they're kind of somewhat lesser-known, particularly in terms of their settlement patterns. Uh, include places such as the Duarawati settlements or settlements associated with the Dwarawati culture of Thailand. There are several sites in Laos that we have, and some of these are very large covering in terms of area, several square kilometres or even tens of square kilometres. That includes a settlement that preceded what is now the capital of Laos and Vientiane, and also Luang Prabang, which is also one of Laos's major settlements today. In the past, there were lots of very large settlements, some of them less known today as what they would have been in the past, as very large and very significant settlements.
1: Now, you've collected all this data. How did you analyse it? How did you piece it together? Given the gaps, there might have been bias in the, in the way certain reports were written as well. How did you go about analysing it and using it to address your research question?
0: Predominantly, in terms of settlements, I looked at a handful of settlement traits in particular. So, these were settlement scale. And settlement scale I took to include both an estimate of the spatial extent of a settlement, so the area in which it covered, and where any evidence of this was available. Also the population size that might have been living in that area. Then a second really important settlement trait was density. So this was basically how many people were living within the settlement and also how many people were living in what might have been areas of a settlement. So that might include relatively high-density areas where people were relatively concentrated with limited amounts of open space between where people were living. And this also might have included more dispersed and low-density kind of settlement patterns where people were more spread out. They might have been in relatively small concentrations and these concentrations were separated by, say, agricultural fields and a lot of open space. So scale and density were two main settlement traits. And my kind of third really important one was kind of morphology. And that is basically the spatial arrangement of habitation areas. And as I was saying, this kind of relates very strongly to both scale and density. This might include linear arrangements, so like houses running along roads or rivers, so long and thin morphologies, or they might have included little clusters of habitation separated by, as I was saying before, agricultural fields and open space, and a final really important one across the mainland, compact kind of spatial arrangements where people were living close together with limited amounts of open space. So morphology was a very important settlement trait that I was looking at.
1: That's really fantastic and so clear you've talked to us about scale density and morphology. When you're working, analysing all, all this data, How do you present it on the page? Is it about working with maps? Is it about working with spreadsheets? Give us a sense of how the archaeologist puts together this sort of data.
0: Yeah, so um, maps were a very important part of my research. I was using uh, GIS software to kind of collate all the settlement data that I could on a site and present it visually. And so people could get a sense of what might have been the settlement area, where people might have been living in these settlement, and any important kind of infrastructural components of these sites. So maps were very important. And then at a kind of larger scale, when I was trying to bring together data from lots of different settlements, things like graphs were very important. So one of the things that I did was compare the sizes of a whole range of sites across the mainland and put all this data into a graph representing how the largest sites of the mainland developed through time, which gave us a picture of how periods in which there were, say, a major phase of settlement growth in which settlements grew in extent really rapidly being able to put like lots of sites from across the mainland into one graphs allowed us to compare what patterns might may have existed across the entire Southeast Asian mainland region and compare sites to one another.
1: so you're looking at this time period of about two and a half thousand years right up to the cusp of industrialization. We can understand it in terms of these two phases, I suppose. So could you tell us a little bit about what we saw in that first phase, the first to mid-second millennium? What sort of settlements and sites are we seeing in this time period?
0: Sure. So basically the start of my time period is, yeah, as you were saying, about 500 BCE, so it's about 2,500 years ago. And why I took this point as my start of my time period is if we go back in time to then all the settlements of mainland Southeast Asia were small, and what we may call by convention sites no larger than what we might think of as villages. However, over the next few hundred years, we start to see the development of what I call the first large-scale settlements, and I used a measure of about 100 hectares to represent the difference between small-scale and large-scale sites, mostly just by convention, although there is some theoretical reasons why 100 hectares might be a measure of significance. And so from the late first millennium BCE and particularly from the beginning of the common era, so about 2000 years ago, we see a phase of regional settlement growth where several very large settlements began to develop across the region. So we see sites beginning to develop particularly from the beginning of the common era. But particularly from about 500 CE onwards, we get lots of evidence of some very large sites. And so now we're talking about settlements covering several square kilometres and even sometimes several tens of square kilometres in area.
1: So this includes some of the region's most famous heritage sites, like we've already mentioned Angkor in Cambodia and Bagan in Myanmar.
0: That's right. So they're probably starting to develop over the course of the first millennium. Sites such as Angkor and Bagan likely reached their greatest extent in the first half of the second millennium CE. And so, across the mainland, what we see is this, is this phase of very extensive settlement growth continued up until around the mid second millennium CE, so about 600 or 500 years ago. And one of the really significant things about this phase is so, we not only see a regional phase of very large settlements develop, but there also seems to be accompanying these settlements growing in size dramatically is a trend towards low-density configurations. So those sites tend to grow in size. They also tend to become much more spread out and include large areas, often agricultural fields within the settlement itself.
1: Okay, so then from the mid-second millennium onwards, what we call the early modern period, we see a change in these patterns. What happened to the major settlements of the region from about the 15th century onwards?
0: Yeah, so it's a really interesting kind of transition period, as you're saying, for around the mid-second millennium CE, and now we enter, in terms of the region, what is often referred to as the early modern period, and this is a term used globally as well. And so there are lots of uh, social and economic changes underway during this period. But in terms of settlements, what you see again is a kind of regional trend where settlements which develop from the second mid-second millennium onwards tend to be no larger than the settlements of the earlier period. And often the major settlements have moved by this stage. So new capitals are emerging, but they tend to not be any larger in terms of area. But they do tend to host large areas of compact habitation. So these are, as I was saying before, areas of habitation where there is limited amounts of open space and people would have been living in relatively dense settlement areas. And what this led to as a trend overall during the early modern period, as settlements overall tends to become denser than the settlements of the preceding historical periods.
1: Okay, I'd like to come to one of the theoretical interventions that I think your research makes, which is that you argue that our understanding of the region's long-term settlement history has remained largely fragmented and partial and is dominated by approaches that privilege social, economic and environmental explanations for processes of development. Can you explain this to us?
0: Yeah, so as you were saying in your introduction, our understanding of Southeast Asian settlement history has been really patchy up until recently. And I think one of the things that has contributed to this is certain theoretical approaches to understanding the region's settlement. And over the last few decades, what has dominated certain approaches to settlements of the region is understanding these settlements as reflections of certain other factors of their development. So that might be, say, geographic context, so where a settlement is. So what you see often is a dichotomy between coastal settlements and inland settlements and an idea that the, a geographical region determined how a settlement would develop. And that was, that's also strongly associated with different economies. So coastal settlements tend to be closer to maritime trading networks. And so, therefore, these maritime trading networks produce trade-based settlements and they have their own particular characteristics versus inland settlements, which are, say, more agriculturally based, and they often tend to be characterised as ceremonial centres. But I think now that we have like much better data on the settlement history of the mainland, it's beginning to erode these kind of dichotomies that kind of rely on explaining the settlement history of the region through other factors external to settlements themselves. And the point I was trying to make in my research is that we need to properly interpret the settlement history of the region. We need to actually incorporate what settlements themselves actually do, how differences in how settlements are spatially arranged, differences between, say, low-density settlements versus more compact settlements, and how people are brought into different spatial arrangements in these different of physical contexts. What effects these produce themselves, and how this might affect other factors. So it's not just that an economy affects the way a settlement develops. But the way a settlement develops also affects economic behaviour. And so it's integrating the interactions between settlement form and the context of their development.
1: Fascinating. Thank you. Now, what are the implications for the historical settlement patterns that you've identified and the settlement patterns that we're seeing across the region today post-industrialisation? Is there a connection?
0: Uh, yeah, that's, that's a very good question. And there is actually quite a fascinating parallels between, say, the history of the region in terms of its settlements and what's happening today. So currently across mainland Southeast Asia, across Southeast Asia, and even globally, we're kind of in a phase of a settlement development where we're seeing very large but relatively low density and dispersed settlement landscapes developing. And so in a, in, a, say in a developed world context, this is often referred to as urban sprawl, but Southeast Asia has kind of bequeathed us one of the most iconic terms for like dispersed settlement landscapes, and that's the desicotta, which combines the Bahasa Indonesian terms for town and, and city. And what these kind of desicotta landscapes look like, I mean, they're very diverse, but often they're kind of characterized as combining both rural characteristics and urban features in the one landscape. And so they're a kind of hybrid landscape. And one of the commonalities, again, with modern low-density s- settlement landscapes, such as the desiccata, is they're often believed to be a purely modern phenomenon. So they're the kind of the outcome of mechanised forms of transportation and outcome of modernity. But if we look at the history of mainland Southeast Asia and we see, as my you know research has tried to show, that there was a regional phase of low-density settlement development and that low-density settlements in the history of the region were very common, can reframe the contemporary settlements such as the Desicotta, as kind of unprecedented outcomes of modernity to a kind of re-emergence of settlement forms which have a very long history across the region. And I should just add here that that's not to say that the drivers and the effects of these settlement landscapes are the same because obviously we're in a very different context now, but there could be some kind of parallels between our settlements and the kind of outcomes they produced and the modern low-density settlement landscape, such as the Desicotta that we're seeing today.
1: What are the effects that these different settlement patterns produced?
0: Yeah, that's a very good question. And I was looking at this at quite a broad scale. So just to take one example, in terms of the differences between, say, low-density settlements, where people are spread out and there's a lot of open space within the settlement, versus more compact settlements. So low density settlements allow for certain things say you can actually produce food within the settlement itself because you have the space for agricultural fields and that means that you know you might have to be less reliant on importing food into a settlement particularly as settlements get very large and that has kind of implications for understanding the development of say trade networks interactions between settlement form and trade across the region so as i was saying that during the early modern period we get larger but denser settlements this was also a period when there's a kind of a boom in trade and the trading networks across the region become much more developed. And so settlements were actually much more able to import food into the settlement itself, whereas kind of previously, trade mechanisms may have been much less available. And so part of the reason why we might see that trend to very large but low-density settlements I was talking about earlier may be related to how settlements are provisioned. So a settlement can grow very large, but by including the space for agricultural fields, it means they don't have to rely on, on external supplies of food. And there's plenty of other examples in terms of the differences between low density and more compact settlements that might have effects on disease. Now, current contexts are very aware of, um, you know, say social distancing or low density settlements may have possessed inbuilt social distancing, which may have provided some protection against certain types of diseases, but also there might have been other types of diseases which are more prevalent in these kinds of environments. So there are a whole lot of kind of trade-offs or pros and cons in terms of how a settlement is spatially arranged. And I think we need to kind of understand these kind of effects of different settlements in interpreting why mainland Southeast Asia had these kind of long-term and regional trends in settlement development.
1: Ben, it's been such a pleasure having you on SEAC Stories. You've been part of SEAC for such a long time, and it's really lovely to have the opportunity to talk in a bit more depth with you about your research. I'm desperate to know before we wrap up, what are your future plans? What are you doing next?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. And one of my major plans at the moment is to publish more of my research that I wish I've been talking to you about today but I'm also very much keen to launch some new research and, and some of the questions that I'm particularly interested in is linking the end of my project which I've been talking to you today which went up to about the end of the 19th century with say the modern developments that are going on across the region such as the Desicota which we we're just talking about and so that would look at settlement history and settlement developments uh, mostly over the 20th century. So, yeah, I think that would be something that would be very interesting to look at.
1: Absolutely. Well, we hope that you get the research support you need to be able to do that, and um, we'll keep an eye out for it. And once again, thank you so much for joining us on the SEAC Stories podcast.
0: Thanks so much, Natalie. It's been, yeah, a lot of fun.
1: You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.